Welcome to our final episode of season one of Church Historia. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey. It's meant so much to us, and we appreciate all of your reviews and emails ratings and for sharing this podcast with your friends. And this week, we're going to take a slightly different approach, and we're going to talk about something more general to American Christianity. But our primary case study this week is located in the South, so don't fret, we're not going too far afield. We're going to talk about civil religion and how it expresses itself in the United States. And this conversation is important because American civil religion uses a lot of language that sounds similar to Christianity, like God, Almighty, called to a specific purpose. If you watch the inauguration, there was a lot of this. But it is its own thing with its own stories, symbols, rituals, and heroes. And we believe that talking about civil religion and learning how it relates to Christianity and patriotism is important for us to have a greater clarity about each of those things and to help us as individuals better understand our motivations and beliefs And a couple of editorial notes before we get started. In the aftermath of the attacks on the U.S. Capitol in early January 2021, there's been a lot of discussion about Christian nationalism. And Christian nationalism and civil religion are different things, but they both occupy the borderlands between Christianity and patriotism. And as a note, patriotism and nationalism are different things. One can be patriotic without being a nationalist, but most nationalists view themselves as deeply patriotic. Christian nationalism demands Christianity be privileged by the government and implies that to be a good American, one must be a Christian, and really a specific type of Christian at that. Civil religion, on the other hand, doesn't care about an individual's devotion or religious practice. And as a second note, the existence of civil religion itself is something that just is. It, like other religious traditions and religions, can have both positive and negative impacts on the community around it. But the rise or presence of a civil religion is more indicative of a people or a community or a country's belief in the importantness and specialness of a set of things within the civil sphere than it is of anything else. So, Steph, basically what we are doing here is we are committing a big no-no and we're talking about politics and faith in a single conversation. Yep amazing. It's going to be awesome. Thank you so much for listening. Let's jump in. The last episode, we touched on the work that Graham and Eisenhower did together around encouraging Americans to be people of faith and this incorporation of religious kind of Christian or maybe even pseudo-Christian elements into civil dialogue about adding in God we trust as the motto, adding under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. And this episode then follows on the heels of this, looking at this discussion and tension that the United States has about sort of church and state religion and the body politic and this kind of tension, because while the United States prides itself on separation of of church and state, there's also this kind of constant debate about whether or not the United States is a Christian nation, a nation of Christians, a nation of religious people, Mm. kind of what does that 
mean? And then there's this kind of blending of religion and national identity in the public sphere and then in religious ones. And I think one of the stories from sort of my own life that comes to mind was being in church on a couple of different Memorial Days and having the battle hymn of the Republic be one of the songs that we sung that was obviously in the North and <laughs> also singing America the Beautiful. And I didn't quite have a vocabulary around civil religion yet at that time, but I remember being surprised that we were singing America the Beautiful. God bless America would have made a little bit more sense to me mm -hmm. because there's an invocation of God for the sake of the nation and like, okay, I get why I'm doing that church, but here I am in a church in regular Sunday service singing an ode to my nation mm -hmm. and, you know, being proud of one's country is not a bad thing by any means. I was just surprised to be doing it as part of Sunday worship. And so that was an early seed for me about this idea of, of civil religion and how national history and, and, symbols and patriotism and, and nationalism get kind of tied in with religion and with Christianity. And often that's a very emotional conversation. I think we've seen that in recent years in conversations about whether or not it's appropriate to kneel during the national anthem, standing in for more than just a song or the flag standing more than just a piece of cloth, but it has this immense symbolic value of standing in for all things American that is kneeling disrespectful. Is it a dialogue? And, and mm -hmm. not just, and this conversation didn't just seem to be about sort of protocol, but there was a deep emotional undercurrent running throughout that. And civil religion can help us understand what's going on in those conversations and mm -hmm. why perhaps there is so much emotion around some of these moments where we see religion and national history or body politic come into play. Later on in the episode, we're going to look specifically at Monticello and what Monticello as a history organization is doing and kind of where some of this um, comes into play there. But before we get to Monticello and to Jefferson, we have to do a little bit of term definition. Excellent. So if we're going to talk about civil religion, the first term we have to define is religion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a term that we use a lot. We've certainly used it a lot on this podcast. But it's also one that it's really hard to pin down the definition. Even religious studies scholars have a really hard time saying what religion is overall. Any given religion is a lot easier to pin down, but when you talk about religions, plural, it gets, gets really difficult. Catherine Albanese is a professor of religious studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and she's thought a lot about this, and she talks about how religions can't be defined easily because they survive both within and outside of boundaries. Like, their, their job is to, in some ways, cross boundaries and then also define boundaries. Mm. So, you know, what is natural, what is supernatural, but religion perhaps lives in the middle of those things and talks about both of those things. And it 
encompasses kind of all elements of human life and not every religion encompasses all of the same things, but in the sum total they do. So it's just got this really uh, squirrely definition. So Albany's has identified four C's that she uses to kind of identify if something qualifies as a religion. And I think it's a helpful definition. So her four C's are creed, which is an account of the meaning of life, of how things go. Hmm. There's a code, which is like the rules about how we operate. There's a cultus, which she means a set of rituals, a set of shared practices that we do. Okay. And then community. Hmm. So you have creed, code, cultus, and community. So a religion must have all four of them, but what shape it looks like varies. And then in conjunction with Albanese's definition, Emil Durkheim, the eminent sociologist, also I think offers a definition of religion that's helpful. He says that religion is a unified system of beliefs and practices relative to sacred things. That is to say, things set apart and forbidden beliefs and practices which unite into a single moral community. So we have this idea of ritual, sacred and profane things, and creation of a shared identity and participation in that identity. So I think that's a decent enough working definition of religion. Right. So then we get to the kind of civil part of, of civil religion and what that means. And so civil here is kind of broadly referring to things in public life. So not just necessarily political life, but the public sphere as a whole. Football games. Yep. Public gatherings. Public gatherings, public squares, public holidays. Mm-hmm. And so we get to civil religion within the United States. Robert Bella, who's a historian of civil religion, really was kind of the first one to name this within the American context. And he describes it this way. He says, though much is selectively derived from Christianity, this religion, meaning civil religion, is clearly not itself Christianity. The God of civil religion is not only rather Unitarian, he's also on the austere side, much more related to order and law than to salvation and love. Even though he is somewhat deist in caste, he is by no means simply a watchmaker God. He is actively interested and involved in history with a special concern for America. And so we have this idea where we have this deist God called God. And I think it's interesting to note how rarely we see Jesus mm-hmm. in mm. this kind of civic dialogue, right? In, in God, yes. we trust, not in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we trust. Under God, not under the Trinity, right. not even under the Father Almighty. And when we look back at, say, presidential speeches or things like that, we'll see the Almighty. You'll see the Creator, but you never see Jesus. Bella points out to this kind of lack of talking about the cross in specific. If you think about something like Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, there is conversation about sacrifice and the hallowing of things through the shedding of blood, mm-hmm. but it's not Christ on the cross that did that that hollowing and made something sacred. It was American blood being shed for the sake of the nation that is doing that that hallowing and that sacredness. It's almost sacredness. as if Jesus's presence is not necessarily the presence of Jesus in conversation. The idea of self-sacrifice, the idea of, yeah, the shedding of blood, it's almost as if, like, that just becomes an idea that's a part of the conversation. Yeah, and, and I think that's why Bella is, is correct that, you know, there's a lot of this is derived from Christianity and derived from the, the Christian vocabulary, but it's not, it's not quite the same. And a huge part of this civil religion is this 
calling that God is uniquely and specially involved in American history and has called America to some grander purpose. Mm -hmm. And so the nation then lives into its purpose or it doesn't. Presidents have this kind of interesting role as almost priests in a way within that civil religion and of asserting this chosenness and this blessedness by God, providing inspiration and consolation when needed, you know, exhorting the nation to to live up to this ideal. And within all of this is idea is the idea that the nation is a moral actor, that we the nation is a thing that has a calling that it can either live into or not live into. And so this becomes a thing of great moral import then because God has called and designed this thing and is the nation sort of living that or not. Mm. One of the things that's also really interesting about civil religion is it's not formalized. So Mark Cladis, who's the chair of religious studies at Brown, kind of makes this interesting point. Says, no state agency declared the Lincoln Memorial or the Bill of Rights as a sacred site or a symbol. These became sacred in the Durkheimian sense that we were just talking about as they accrued public significance and figured importantly in the public formation of moral identities and orientations. So whether the objects that become those sacred objects or those sacred sites or those sacred people within civil religion are kind of unofficially voted on by majority, majority rule, if you will, so as a result of that, they also change. Mm-hmm. So things have different value, different context. They're interpreted in various ways throughout history. Um, you can look at something like the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence and the phrase, all men are created equal. And the Declaration and the Constitution in particular have these huge sacred values that people have attached to them. They have become these almost mythical objects in our international discourse about how we should think about them, talk about them. Are we allowed to edit them, Mm. right? The conversations about amendments to the Constitution always at least seem to me incredibly touchy because to suggest it needs amendments would be to suggest that perhaps it's flawed or incomplete. And that seems something that gives a lot of people pause to suggest that maybe it doesn't apply for all people at all times in all situations and needs modification. So going back to the Declaration of Independence, we take this phrase, kind of all men are created equal, that's been interpreted by different groups and understood differently. And that importance of sort of leaving it alone or leaving the traditional understanding of it alone has varied. You certainly see the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement about what rights are to be had and do they only belong to white landed men or do they belong to others as well? And so I think part of what makes civil religion even more complicated is the fact that there are civil religions. So not only is it not a formalized thing in general, it's not even a formalized thing in particular. It shares a lot of this vocabulary with Christianity, which makes it at first blush maybe look like it's the same thing. And so it is a thing that I think operates within our communities, but that we have a hard time identifying and and pinpointing and understanding where those lines between nationalism, civil religion, and what I'm going to loosely call traditional religion, for example, for Christianity. And so I think a really 
good specific example of this is looking at Monticello, which was Thomas Jefferson's home, and particularly looking at the work that they have done in recent years to tell the story of the enslaved people who were at Monticello and also to talk about the relationship between Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemming. Mm -hmm. And they, historically, they've kind of avoided talking about either of those things. And that's true when you visit a lot of slave plantations in the South, you often get a history of the big house, Mm. of the the white folks who lived there and what they did. And oftentimes if they had a plantation that large that lasted to become a historical site, they had money and influence and power. And so there is an interesting story there, but that's oftentimes been the only story that's been told. And the story of the enslaved people who worked that land and who lived on that property is often ignored, I think in part because it makes us very uncomfortable to acknowledge the depth of that suffering. And so Monticello in recent years has has tried to do more to highlight the lives of the enslaved people at Monticello and, and what their life was like. And then also, most recently, they set up a an exhibit, I think it opened in 2018, dedicated to discussing the relationship between Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemming. So Sally Hemming was one of Thomas Jefferson's slaves, and there's been a longstanding belief that Sally Hemming had children by Thomas Jefferson. And that has carried on into some DNA research that has been done with some of Sally's known descendants against some of Jefferson's known descendants. And the biggest study that I was that was done came out as, as saying that Sally Hemming's line and Jefferson's line mixed and it, it that Sally had children by Thomas. And that relationship is particularly problematic and challenging because it's not a relationship of equals, Mm. right? Jefferson owned Sally. And so there is a lot of speculation about what exactly those dynamics were within, within that relationship. But I think we can say certainly that it was not a relationship of equal power. And so making that assertion at all has been very controversial. And Monticello's attempts to tell and share this history and to talk about the relationship between Thomas and Sally has been very controversial because of our understanding of Thomas Jefferson. So in the United States, our founding fathers are legends. When we generally talk about them, they're these near mythic men who did this great and wonderful thing. And I think we often like to think about them as kind of all-knowing or smarter, able to see more than the average person. We have tremendous faith that the ideas and structures of government that they thought about and thought of are are transcendent in a lot of ways and that they are, you know, these are our heroes. And and of all the founders, right, Jefferson (laughs) wrote the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. He is like, if you had to pick one founder who's kind of the first among equals, I'm, I'm not sure if it's Washington or Jefferson, mm-hmm. and it's probably Jefferson because he wrote more stuff. <laughs> and so here we have this mythic founding hero who's, you know, the, the father of, of liberty and mm. wrote all these beautiful words about justice and freedom and independence. And when we understand that through this lens of civil religion and the moral import that that is, that we live in the nation that is Jefferson's legacy and it's called to this great purpose. 
Well, then when we start talking about Jefferson as a human, mm. a real person and a real person who is flawed and who owned other people, who had a questionably consensual relationship with a woman, and not just a woman, but a woman who he owned. When we start to look at these things about Jefferson, that kind of starts to tarnish this, this vision that we have of this mythic hero who... Mm brought forth all of these glorious things about about liberty and freedom. There's a bit of cognitive dissonance there. Yes. Where it almost feels like we're talking about two people. Yes, yes. And how, how could somebody who, you know, espoused these beautiful ideas also have done these despicable things? And, mm. and I think you're right on with that cognitive dissonance and this struggle that we have. And it's not just the cognitive dissonance when we hear about a generic person who has done both good and bad things. But there's something about the fact that Jefferson is a founder and is part of this mythos and has this status that if we start to question him, what else do we have to question? Yeah. Do we have to question those words that he wrote, those foundational values? What does that say about our, our calling as a nation? Are we really this blessed and this pure and this called if our founders did despicable things mm -hmm. and can we have both? And so there is a lot of resistance to thinking about Jefferson as a slaveholder or talking about him as a slaveholder or talking about his relationship with Sally Hemming. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I think is really interesting is there's an organization that's headquartered right down the street from Monticello called the Thomas Jefferson Historical Society. And it was explicitly established as a response by a cross-section of citizens to efforts by many historical revisionists to portray Thomas Jefferson as a hypocrite, a liar, and a fraud. And mm. it disagrees with the assertion that Jefferson and Hemming had children together. And those things are very closely aligned. And so I think it's interesting that like this whole historical society has formed to defend the reputation of Jefferson. Because in these lines, I read that it is a bad thing to be a hypocrite, a liar, and a fraud. And I, like, okay, yeah, I don't, I don't know that those are adjectives I'd like anybody to use for me either, but we don't form societies for every individual who's been called a hypocrite, a liar, or a fraud. Mm -hmm. But there's something about Jefferson. There's something about why it's important that Jefferson is not a hypocrite, that Jefferson is not a liar, that Jefferson is not a mm -hmm. fraud, that Jefferson did not have a relationship with Sally Hemming, particularly because of its cloudy consensual nature right? That's a bad thing. And Jefferson can't do bad things. We can't have him being a bad person. Mm -hmm. And when we start to get into why can't we have that? Why is that uncomfortable for us? I think we start to encounter these, these pieces of civil religion, these things that maybe we haven't named for ourselves, but we place tremendous value on. There's a lot of rhetoric throughout the United States history about God calling America to fulfill a specific role in the history of the world. And I think that's something that a lot of Americans in one way or another carry with them. And because we use the term God to identify the, the being that has done this commissioning, I think it's easy for a lot of people to leap that into Christianity then. And that's where this border between Christianity mm. and civil religion gets a little blurry is we know that God calls individuals into relationship with God. So it feels mm -hmm. like a pretty reasonable leap to say that God might call the United States. But if we're still situating that within a Christian context, 
then that same logic could, could and should apply to any nation in the world. And also, I think we need to be reminded the United States doesn't show up in the Bible. So <laughs> there's so God's calling hmm. and, and words are for all peoples. Our identification as the new Israel, the new chosen people, is an extra biblical thing that mm-hmm. the Puritans certainly felt when they came. And I think kind of from then on has been part of the American psyche, but is outside of mm. scriptural text. I don't, I don't think that there is necessarily a contradiction between a person's Christianity or a person's faith and patriotism, but I do think it's important to think about this space in the middle where those things come together, but in a way that is separate and and certainly separate from the actual religious tradition. And that it's good for us to to have these labels and to have these terms and to be able to use them when we talk about things, when we think about things, when we think about why talking about Jefferson as a slaveholder might make us uncomfortable. Yeah. And hopefully this gives us a vocabulary to help understand those feelings and work through those feelings and decide if those are positions that we feel strongly about and want to keep or if those are things that maybe we want to hold a little bit more loosely. Since this season is about particularly the South, there's a certain road that I have to like be aware of when I drive down this road. It is full of yard signs that say Trump 2020 followed by things like Jesus is Lord. And things that are both nationalistic and both Christian in nature. And I don't think anyone would argue that there is a sort of coming together of those things on certain levels within certain communities, within certain movements. And especially in the South, I think yeah, that's very we, present. And we've talked a lot throughout this season about people being motivated to do things based mm-hmm. on their faith and to do things in areas of social reform or moral reform and to participate in politics or civics as as an outpouring of their working out of their faith. Mm -hmm. And what identifying civil religion helps us do is helps us better name the motivations for the things that we do. As we talked about earlier in the season, people are motivated by a variety of things and you can even have multiple motivations for doing a single act. And I think that civil religion can help us just understand and name those motivations. People are a holistic being. You're not going to separate your religious faith from your participation in the public sphere. But also, I do think that the addition of these terms in our vocabularies can help us understand where those boundaries are, where those motivations are. And also maybe prompt us to ask some questions that we hadn't asked before, looked at some things more closely than we had before to make sure that we are truly living in line with our values and with those Mm -hmm. convictions and just kind of taking a critical examination at ourselves and our motivations. This concludes our first season of Church Historia. Thank you again for joining us on this journey. We hope you've found it enjoyable, thought-provoking, informative, and fun like we have. We'd love to hear from you about what you enjoyed the most. So if you haven't already done so, we'd love if you left a review on your platform of choice 
and or told a friend about our podcast. We'd be so grateful. And if you're on our email list, keep an eye out in your email over the next couple months for some extra bonus content and announcements about future plans. And if you're not on the list, join it at churchhistoria.com. Until we talk again, may all be well with you now and always. This has been the Church Historia podcast. Our host and historian is Stephanie Fulbright, and our producer, designer, editor, and co-host is Leslie Eiler-Thompson. All the music played in this season was done beautifully by Andrea Yoey and Megan Santee. We're so grateful to the folks at the Scarrett Bennett Center for allowing us to use their gorgeous space for recording these episodes. You can find links to all the episodes and learn more about the team at churchhistoria.com. Thank you for listening.